Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review Podcast. I am your handsome and charming host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. We're at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have lots of great stuff for you this week. Samuel Porteous about his article about the multiplicity of multiverses in our popular culture right now, DC, Marvel, and so much more. We're going to talk to Rachel Llewellyn about the new movie, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and Adam Hirschfelder is going to stop by to talk about the new Netflix show, Clickbait, starring Adrian Grenier of Entourage. If that doesn't tempt you to watch it, I don't know what will. But first, we're going to talk to Sharon Vane, my co-Austin, Texas resident, she is writing yet again about a spate of censorship in our schools. School boards and mayors and cops are all getting together to ban books and writing assignments that they don't find appropriate. And we don't find it appropriate that they're doing that. And we're deploying Dee Snyder and Twisted Sister singing, We're not going to take it to protest these, uh, these unjust, unjust, these terrible acts of censorship. You remember when Dee Snyder was uh, testifying in front of Congress? about censorship back in the 80s. He's still alive. We could use him again. I don't know if he cares about these issues or not anymore. Probably not, but we do. Welcome, Sharon, and welcome to you. Hello. Thanks so much for having me on. There is frequently book banning and book censorship to talk about, and this is the perfect week. Yes, yes. It's, it's not a national holiday, although it is a national pastime, it seems. So you had a piece, it was actually in last week's Book and Film Globe, but it's still relevant today. It was sort of a roundup of various uh, book and writing controversies in uh, in the United States, not just in Texas. We've written about the Texas situation quite a bit. But uh, the first one you wrote about was in York, Pennsylvania, right? And what was that one about? Well, it's interesting. This is one that has really made national news and really kind of become sort of a, um, a bellwether for conversations around what it means to ban books and resources um, from, uh, you know, authors of color. Um, there's a school board in York, Pennsylvania, that actually back last fall pulled its district's entire list of resources, um, diverse books, um, uh, documentaries, just like four Google Sheets pages worth of things to and told teachers they couldn't use them because they needed to review them and were concerned about, you know, maybe making some of our white students feel bad about the fact that they're white. And so we need to review the whole thing. But essentially, they were telling teachers, you can't use these items in the classroom. And um, there's a group of students who pushed back and protested for several days in a row, and some of the authors got uh, wind of it and really started to amplify what was going on. We're talking about, you know, books like, you know, Jason Reynolds' remix of Ibram Kendi's Stamped. We're talking about this book is anti-racist, which these are books that have been challenged in other areas. But we're also talking about a coloring book that had African symbols in it. We, you know, are talking about a lovely picture book from... Newberry Honoree Grace Lynn about you know, Moon Festival. 
things that are just not controversial in any way, shape, or form, but do reflect the diverse student body. So huge push, um, you know, to uh, against the Central York School District. And a few days after our story ran, the school board actually voted to temporarily reverse the ban and let students have access to these materials, which we don't always have a happy ending here at Book and Film Globe and censorship, but this was a case when that happened. I'd like to think our coverage had a lot to do with that. I would love to believe that that is the case as well as we shine a spotlight on the national stage on these things that are happening. Well, here's the thing. Like, I mean, obviously it's absurd that a big mooncake for Little Star by Grace Lynn was banned. You know, it's literally about a girl eating a cookie <laughs> that was somehow banned by a school board. The rest of this feels like it falls into the debate over critical race theory. And it's sort of it's all gotten gummed up with censorship. You know, obviously, Ibram X. Kendi, um, you know, and this book is anti-racist. Those are those are political flashpoints. I mean, I obviously I think the kids should be reading whatever they want, whatever teachers assign. Um, and it's just weird to me that completely apolitical books that are really just sort of reflecting diversity get caught up in that. Right. And, you know, it's not uncommon. I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a huge crossover between what happened in Central York and what we see happening at school districts across the country, where out of fear of this kind of hopped up controversy over critical race theory, which, you know, anyone who does any minimal reading realizes is not actually being deployed in, you know, kindergarten through 12 classrooms across the country. Um, but it's become the buzzword of, you know, white kids hate themselves and, you know, this is sowing diversity. And in fact, you know, we heard that in Central York uh, a couple of weeks ago where one of the school board members said, you know, this isn't a ban, we're just reviewing it, but we're not going to teach a curriculum that teaches division and hate. Um, and that feels like a really interesting worldview when what you're trying to do is bring in some more um, kind of, you know, the rich tapestry of human experience. What were black people's experience? What are Hispanic uh, people's experience? Can we read a book about, you know, other people other than white straight people? Um, it, it feels like a massive jump to say we're teaching division and hate when um, we just bring in some different voices. Oh, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I do disagree with you to some extent. I mean, there's a big difference between teaching, you know, sort of books about anti-racist theory and just express, you know, and books that express diverse experiences. But I just feel like a lot of times the people who are in charge of these decisions can't make a distinction between something that is like expressly political. And Ibram X. Kendi is expressly political and, you know, a picture book about moon festivals. You know, I, it, to me, it's just it, it, it just shows how little uh, critical thinking, so to speak, is being put into these decisions. Now, uh, another one you wrote about this one was was different uh, and very spicy. Uh, this, this situation in Hudson, Ohio, um, the mayor of the town uh, threatened to bring charges against the entire school board if members did not resign over a book of writing prompts. Now, that is that is a bizarre situation. Yes, it is. I mean, it truly is a bizarre situation. So this was a case with a, a dual credit uh, writing class for high school seniors. Um, it's a college class, and uh, parents of these seniors had to sign a book or sign a, a contract saying that they understood 
you know, students would be exposed to, you know, college level work. Um, so it was a book of writing prompts, right? 642 things to write about. And some of the things were pretty, you know, straightforward, um, you know, make a case for your favorite fruit or perfect day as an astronaut. And then there were some, because this is a book for college students and adults, um, that were a little, you know, a little spicier, write a sex scene. You wouldn't show your mom one about drinking beer. I, I think, you know, their parent complaints district pulled the book away said, you know, no one had been assigned these problematic prompts if you want to see them as problematic. Um, they just said, okay, we're going to use a different book. But that was not the end of it. The mayor of the town apparently went to a judge and, you know, got some information about his interpretation of the law and came to a school board meeting and told them they should all resign or they're going to face legal consequences the school boards association in Ohio, of course, says there's not really any liability. And the board's president said they wouldn't be resigning since our story published. The mayor has continued on his quest. He's gone to the, pol the local police who they now say are, are investigating what's going on. And if there are any charges that are, are possible to be brought, yeah, which to says, me is beyond he, the pale. He says they're distributing child pornography for a book of writing prompts. Put out, by the way, by uh, it's the, the book is called 642 Things to Write About. I believe it's it's put out by um, the educational branch of the McSweeney's Publishing Empire, which spawned my glorious career. Um, and, you know, it's, it's it, you know, that's just it's just absurd to me. What a fuss budget to, to come <laughs> up and, 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 and tell the school board that they're distributing child pornography. You know, if, this, if the teacher wants to say, don't do the sex scene prompt, please. Do the fruit prompt or, you know. Right. There I, are simple ways to handle this. And the idea that the elected, you know, lead elected official in a municipality is going to take time out of his busy day, presumably ruling the, the town to go, you know, attempt to bring charges against a school board just shows how absurd the discourse is becoming. And, you know, kind of the point we were making in the story is how these little cases are, they're amusing at some level, but they're also kind of disturbing that this is what we've come to as, you know, a society where, you know, we've talked a lot about Texas and uh, suburban Austin and everything going on there. And that was sort of some examples of other things that happened that we talked about in this story of, you know, a parent or two finding a book, not liking the fact that there was sex in the book or references to gay sex in the book and showing up at the school board meeting and causing, you know, viral video scenes and getting the book pulled. Um, it just feels like it's rewarding bad behavior. Yeah. And, you know, here's what, I mean, this is just my take on what's going on and you can, you can agree or disagree, but I feel like you're having, you have a clash between two, extreme ideologies and ordinary students and parents are getting caught in the middle. On the one hand, you have sort of retrograde moral majority, uh, puritanical morality, which is obviously still, uh, there's obviously still a heavy strain of it in America. And then you have sort of, uh, you know, sort of left-wing, um, multicultural, anti-racist philosophy. And the two are not compatible, you know? I mean, and in people, and, but, in the middle is like, it's just literature and writing. 
And it doesn't necessarily have to be ideological. And you're right, and you continually write about this, you know, contemporary young adult literature reflects reality, the reality that these kids face and the reality that teenagers and young adults face, as it always has, involves sex and drugs and abuse and problems. People have problems. And I just don't understand why, you know, if parents don't want their kids reading a certain book, that's their prerogative. I don't understand why they're trying to bring in elected officials and the police. Bringing in the police is just, to me, the bottom of the barrel. And that's going on in Leander, Texas, which we are constantly talking about here. Right. I mean, it, it's chilling how, um, you know, Leander, which, you know, actually is, has now spiraled up into kind of a national example of uh, misdeeds um, with Banned Book Week. Um, and, uh, you know, folks who put on Banned Book Week are, are doing national conversations about exactly what's happening in Leander. Um, you know, parents have gone from we don't feel like these books are appropriate and we're going to ask the district to review it to we are going to the police to complain about books that are available in the library, not even part of the curriculum, not assigned, just there on the shelves. And, you know, kid, you know, checked it out, brought it home and people are going to the police and complaining about it. And to me, what is even worse is that instead of the police saying, this is not our job, we're not going to pursue this. The Leander police are saying we're investigating and seeing if we can bring criminal charges. We're going to bring criminal charges over a book? Against who? Who's going to bring criminal charges against the author? Against the school? Against the teacher? Who even knows? I mean, there are many avenues that this could go, and none of them are good. To me, when you're bringing in law enforcement over um, a story, over, I mean... Over a book. I mean, these are not, you know, books encouraging people to, you know, bomb the Capitol. I mean, you know, which you you wouldn't it it just these are fiction stories. And if you don't like them and you don't want your kids to read them, then they, they don't have to read them. Don't take it away from everybody else. Right. The proper response by the police would be like, um, well, we have to investigate this murder. So, no. But what's interesting is. You know, the, your article, there were, not only did one of the authors who was being uh, banned or potentially banned chime in, you also heard from this, one of the school board members in Leander, a guy named Jim McKay, who says that historically underserved voices and authors absolutely need to be part of our American literature. So he's like, all right, I'm not racist. I'm not a bigot. However, books that describe in exceptionally graphic detail gang rape, pedophilia, and child sexual abuse are appropriate in middle school and high school regardless of the author. And I mean, that's his, that's, that's the point of view. That's what he's coming out at. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't think that's true. Well, I also think the framing of this is so interesting. And the school board member you're talking about is somebody who resigned from uh, the Leander school board because he was so upset over, you know, Leander pulled like 13, 14, 15 books off of its book club choice list, which we've written about before and kept some books and the books that stayed were still so objectionable to the school board member that he resigned. And he did, he came in, you know, to the comment section and, you know, it's so interesting how, you know, books about 
gay relationships or books about where there's a short passage referencing a past abuse, all of a sudden the book, you know, the book as a whole is about pedophilia or the book as a whole, you know, child sexual experimentation, underage sexual experimentation gets translated into pedophilia. It's a very, um, very strange time in uh, education and in, in our discourse. And I have a feeling that these battles will continue to rage. So, Sharon, thank you so much for covering a difficult topic. You know, you're doing you're doing a, a non-denominational God's work and we appreciate it. <laughs> Well, I try, and I, it's always, always a pleasure to be able to shine a light on this, and hopefully, eventually, we won't have these stories to write anymore. Frequent Book and Film Globe contributor Rachel Llewellyn joins me now. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Neil. Thanks for talking to me today. Of course, and you're now a, a film critic. You've joined our, our roster of film critics. You reviewed the new movie The Eyes of Tammy Faye uh, starring Jessica Chastain as Tammy Faye Baker Messner and uh, directed by Michael Showalter who um, is better known for his comedy work he was you know he's in Wet Hot American Summer and uh, other other comedy movies and that that's what he's done as a director is, is, is comedy and, and but this is a this is more of a standard biopic it is. Yeah, it's definitely a bit of a departure, but I think he chose a good project. If he was going to kind of divert from his normal niche, this was a good project. It had a lot of, you know, promise and potential to it, and I think he treated the subject fairly as, as a director. Yeah, I mean, and obviously Jim and Tammy Faye Baker is, is a big, it's not a comic story, but it's a big sort of cartoonish story taken uh, from from reality. And, you know, what I thought was interesting about this movie is that it was based on a documentary by the same name, a documentary that came out, I guess, 20 years ago now. Uh, and, and you jumped on this immediately. Like, obviously, you're a big fan of the documentary. Yes, uh, I am a big fan of the documentary. It's been, oh, gosh, how many years since it came out? 2000. So, yeah, it's been a minute since it came out. I love the documentary and I felt like the film sort of tried to give it the Hollywood treatment and sort of sold it short a little bit. Um, you know, as I go on to mention in my article. Yeah. How so? Well, I feel they sort of minimized and turned her into a caricature. I mean, obviously she became very beloved by, you know, the gay community and the drag subculture community as well. Um, for many different aspects of her personality. And I feel like this Hollywood treatment was very much geared towards that audience. And ironically, it sort of sacrificed some of her three-dimensionality in other aspects. Um, you know, the biggest part I feel of her personality that goes unexplored in the movie, for example, is like her her forgiveness. Like half the story happens after the film's already over and she really starts living, you know, a fuller life. You know, she's really vocal in the documentary, for example, about, you know, moving past everything. She reaches out to people that she's had problems with. She wrote to Jerry Falwell. She forgave her ex-husband, Jim Baker. They remained very good friends. Um, you know, the journalist who exposed, you know, all the money stuff, she met with him directly. So she has this real earnest kind of desire to connect with people, bury the hatchet, you know, move on. She became a lot more, you know, accepting and became the face of a much more moderate 
version of Christianity. We don't really get that sense from the movie. Um, and I feel like the second half of her story really kind of rounded out her personality. Um, you know, the, the part of the narrative was really, the emphasis was more on, you know, the, the camp, the flair, the flamboyance, the rags to riches, redemption. And I feel like they treated fuller aspects of her personality sort of more dismissively. Well, that's very interesting because, you know, I know that you're a, uh, I don't know if you want, if you're willing to talk about this, but you're a you know, devoted Christian, right? And this, um, the, the movie, you know, and she's a Christian preacher, you know, and it feels like the movie maybe doesn't quite um, delve into that. Yes, I felt it was a bit reductive in that aspect. I got to say, when when this scandal first broke, like in the late, late 80s, um, I was just a little kid, but I was raised fairly conservative and we were extremely conservative Christians. <laughs> and as the like other end of the spectrum, uh, we were kind of just as outraged and disgusted by that, you know, public portrayal of Christianity that you're seeing, you know, the Jerry Falwells, the Jimmy Swaggarts, you know, the Jim Bakers, all of that was unfolding right around the time of, you know, that Reagan era moral majority stuff where politics and religion were really intermarrying publicly. And so I kind of, you know, had an impression of that scandal when it happened. And, you know, when I watched the documentary, um, as someone who is a practicing Christian, I felt that it gave her a fair treatment, um, but it didn't really go into more problematic or conservative aspects of her personality. Like I mentioned in my article about how she advocates, you know, complementarianism and which means that, you know, the wife submits to the husband as the leader in the family unit. And she was a believer in that. And that's kind of not really addressed. This sort of glossed over Um you know, her, I mentioned a couple of things about how she was supportive of the gay community, but uh, the impression was more uh, that some people took away from it was more that she was forgiving of people for their homosexuality, not necessarily accepting of it, sort of accepting of it um, almost in the sense of being a flaw. You know, she... Uh, gave advice I mentioned in my article to one person who said, well, what would you say to a young gay person trying to be accepted by parents who don't accept his homosexuality? And she recommended that he, quote, not throw it in anyone's face. So her, you, we have to kind of qualify her views and see her personality as complicated. And you feel like this movie uh, is, is a little cartoony in the way it presents the bakers. I, I sort of do. I mean, of course, that's what it is. You have creative license. And I mean, that it's such a fantastic story in reality that you don't really have to do much dramatization. I mean, she's such an emotional, you know, uh, flamboyant person. Like I mentioned, all, all the director really has to do is point and shoot. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was interesting the way the movie framed it. She did, she was very involved in the gay community. She did one woman shows, you know, in places like Castro and Miami Beach area, you know, kind of unsinkable Molly Brown type of stuff. She did, went to pride events and did meet and greets there. She judged lookalike contests. But, you know, again, her, she liked her portrayal in the original documentary because she felt like it humanized her. But I feel like the movie went full circle back to, you know, again, the caricature. I'm, the whole time I'm just really aware that it's Jessica Chastain character acting. Well, that's what I was going to say is that it feels to me like this is a little bit Oscar baity. Uh, not, I, the movie is obviously <laughs> you know, is not going to win an Oscar, 
But uh, Jessica Chastain is is certainly gunning for at least a nomination. And I, I'm, I'm imagining Andrew Garfield is also, uh, you know, pl- playing around with that as well. He, he plays Jim Baker. I'm sure we will be hearing both of these actors' names around Oscar season for sure. Um, I, I don't want to use the name, the term pandering, but, you know, it, I definitely got that impression uh, from it. There's... There's a scene at the end of the movie that really struck me where she performs solo on stage. She's at a church for the first time in years, you know, kind of a comeback to that Christian world after years away. And she, you know, she's on stage in her this glittery dress and she's belting out this song and it cuts to this kind of parallel performance in her head. And there's this full choir behind her and choreography and this big waving American flag and flashing lights. And then it cuts back to her singing alone on stage. And the audience in the theater laughed at that dichotomy. And I think that kind of captures this movie's sort of miss in a nutshell. The movie had cartoonized, you know, her personality and her internality to her internal life to sort of serve the primary narrative devices of flamboyance. And I think that it ultimately hurts the movie. All right. Well, that's the eyes of Tammy Faye opening this week. Rachel, thank you for a very thoughtful and intelligent critique of the film. And we will be talking to you soon. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. Book and Film Globe contributor Samuel Porteous joins me now to talk about his article from this week about the multiplicity of multiverses in our superhero entertainment. Sam is an interesting case for Book and Film Globe because he first became known in our pages because someone wrote a review of a book he'd written, but I guess you were so uh, enamored by either the review or the site itself that you joined our roster of contributors. I would say it was a combination of both. Well, all right. So, well, we're glad to have you. You've written some some very entertaining and interesting stuff for us. And this week's piece really um, captures uh, a phenomenon in the zeitgeist, the sort of the multiverse, the rise of the multiverse. That's the way in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is the uh, you know the beast that has uh, gobbled up all of global entertainment. That's that's the way they're going. Uh, and as you point out, you're obviously like a, a longtime comic book fan that this has the multiverse concept is, you know, has got a 60 year history. Yeah, it's it's quite fascinating when you look at it, like how it stretches back to like 1961. And essentially they're recycling stories from 1961 when they adapt them to live action film. And uh, so it is quite fascinating to watch the development and see how it transplants to the big screen. Right. Well, we had, you know, stuff like Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, in D.C. That was a 1986 comic book series, but then they adapted it and to some extent in the uh, the, the live action DV, D.C. shows, The Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, Supergirl and all yeah. that very recently uh, and did a modern version of that. And now this um, the current multiverse trend in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is only beginning to churn is, as you point out, a, a ripoff in some ways of Secret Wars, which has been a uh, something that Marvel has done a couple of times. Well, yeah, what's fascinating about Secret Wars is its first iteration was um, one of Marvel's first big crossover events. And um, back in 1984, and it came about because of uh, a deal they had 
with Mattel toys. And uh, I, I love the fact that the reason it's called Secret Wars apparently is that they had a bunch of focus groups with kids and they were looking for names and they said, well, kids apparently really like the word secret and they also really like the word wars, hence Secret Wars. So that's uh, it. Uh, that's the only reason it exists. <laughs> well, I, I, but the comics sold, I guess, what was it? Um, they, they, it was the best-selling series for 25 years. And the toy, um, some of them, which uh, the toys, the figurines that were, you know, sort of being cross-promoted, like was the whole purpose of this, um, they did not sell so well. But uh, certainly the legacy of uh, the publishing element continues. Well, and now those kids are in charge of the entertainment business, and they're pretty much just making their childhoods come true on screen. I mean, what's what's going on with Marvel is is ridiculous. I mean, you've got you know a Spider-Man movie coming out in December that we don't know for sure yet, but it promises you know three all three actors who have played Spider-Man live on screen promises that that they're gonna get together in one place. The new Batman movie, the Robert Pattinson Batman movie, is teasing the fact that Michael Keaton is going to be back as Batman, you know, even though he's no longer yeah. really Batsuit worthy in terms of his age. Well, it's actually well, it's interesting because it's actually the Flash that is going to have um, the Michael Keaton Batman and the and the uh, and the square jawed uh, Ben Affleck R world version. The the intro, Pattison's Batman, according to you know rumors, is going to be from Earth Two. So again, like you say, there's this convoluted you know expression of all this multiverse complexity coming out. It's it, it's um it, it certainly hasn't been seen in popular entertainment before. Right, and it's 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 like I said, it's began it's beginning to to appear in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well, and they sort of are, are preparing us for that. Well, with Loki, the the, the show that was on Disney+, Plus had mm-hmm. a strong multiverse component, and it was different with the branching off of the timelines, and now um, the show What If, an animated show that is essentially, you know, it's a, it's a Marvel cartoon series. As you pointed out, it's largely rotoscoping live action, and it's using all the same voice actors, and is presenting these yep. sort of alternate realities, alternate timelines, some of them very, very dark um, yes. versions of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And that's based yep. on a comic book series that's been around since we were kids. Yeah, and, and in fact, like WandaVision as well laid the groundwork. So it's interesting the interplay between, you know, Disney plus of uh, their television offerings and the cinematic universe. And what you see here is a complementarity between sort of the television offerings and the film world that you don't see with DC. And I think one could argue it's it's operating to a detriment when it comes to DC's uh, multiverse presentation. Because fans, you know, uh, we, we indicated earlier that there's such a volume of this material that if it's not, you know, properly formatted and coordinated, it, it can appear overwhelming. Like it's been referred to as an immersive experience, but, you know, that Disney Plus uh, channel is, I think, way beyond immersive when it comes to, you know, the volume of content. Well, it is true that, it, you know, I'm, you know, I am uh, pretty well versed in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it, it does, I mean, as ridiculous as it is, and it is very ridiculous, it does yeah. more or less hold together as a coherent storyline Whereas the DC material just feels like you're reading a bunch of different comic books. 
and they, yeah. they have all these different points of view and the different yeah. interpretations of the characters, and you're just kind of like, well, what, what is this? And that, that's kind of the way I, I felt. I mean, I don't really read comic books anymore, I, and when I do, I'm like, these are for children. That's absolutely right, and, and, and understanding that hierarchy is interesting, too, because, like, these concepts were introduced in what were essentially, you know, uh, products designed for 7- to 12-year-old audiences, and then they, they, they had to be evolved uh, a bit for, like, the next step up, which was the animation world, and then, you know, the, the film world. And um, this, this sort of ratcheting up of sort of the intellectual or narrative component of those stories to reach, you know, a more a mature audience um, is part of the journey. And I think the, um, the problem with DC that you were outlining with their sort of scattershot approach is it, it takes away from the fans' emotional investment in the franchises. Because if you look at Lucas and what he did with Star Wars, you know, once you start playing with what, um, you know, what is referred to as the sacred timeline, you know, or the canon um, of a franchise, uh, the, the biggest fans, the most emotionally invested fans, uh, it disturbs them because they've invested all this time in understanding all their characters and storylines. And now people are telling them, well, that's relatively, you know, irrelevant. We're going to introduce uh characters with, you know, variants of these characters that have entirely different personalities and life experiences and storylines. And uh, a lot of people find it discombobulating and they sort of withdraw their investment in the franchise. And that's the danger um, of too much multiverse. Right. And right. And you're going to lose that sort of non-core fan. Like, I mean, I'm familiar with the multiverse concept, but I'm you know, I have a, I guess I'm a comic book nerd. I don't know, but I, I you know, I, I thought that the old Justice League series and the Justice League Unlimited series, when they would do multiverse plot lines, did it very well. The old uh, Marvel animated show Avengers, uh, yeah. Earth Mightiest Heroes would do multiverse stuff, and that, that that always worked. But now you're now you're dealing with this, you know, live action multi headed Hydra, and so to speak, and uh, you know, it's it's complicated. Well, yeah, and I think I think you're right that the the DC has always been sort of superior in the animation storytelling, and Marvel has been superior in live action. So I think we've even got a link in the article to Owlman and his nihilism uh, in 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 response to the discovery of the multiverse. And that is, you know, when you talk about for kids, no, that is not a bad depiction and explanation of what the scientific basis for the multiverse is and a pretty grim nihilistic response to it. And again, on the corporate level, what's fascinating about that is that Disney, when they purchased Marvel, you know, they, they, they what they were purchasing were characters and storylines because Disney's description of itself is we, we, you know, we, we are a company of characters and storylines. And they purchased Marvel when they realized they were too far on the Disney princess side and needed some boys stuff. And they purchased for, you know, I think it was $6 billion in 2009, Marvel. But remember, only 10 years earlier, you could have purchased Marvel, like who cares about publishing, you know, the near bankrupt publishing house for $55 million. But what happened in the interim was people said, oh, wait a minute, this isn't a publishing company. This is a IP library of market-tested characters and storylines. And that's what Disney purchased. And this is what they're putting in their animation and films now. And as you point out in the article, the, the really the, the end game for all this, there's really only one way it can go, which is a 
DC versus Marvel super battle movie. And why don't we yeah. throw why don't we throw in Star Wars as well? Well, yeah, if if Disney has the IP, which they do, right? They've purchased yeah. the Star Wars, you know. So this is this is the danger, you know, when when not danger, I would say, but I, I would hesitate to include Star Wars with DC and Marvel, but. I think, you know, where it is going, that is the logical end of it. But it also points to the fact that this can't continue forever. This phenomenon of the superhero genre dominating the multiplex, like dominating popular culture. We've seen these cycles before. And, you know, as I note in the um, in the article, you know, it is a record breaking phenomenon that's transfixed a generation until it doesn't. Yes. That will be the brain freeze moment for sure. Well, Samuel Porteous has written an excellent article in Book of Film Globe this week on the multiplicity of multiverses, everything you've ever wanted to know about multiverses, and then some. Adam Hirschfelder is back here on the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. Adam has taken upon himself to subject himself to the worst television imaginable. <laughs> I, I can't. Is, I can't quit it, and I can't quit you, Neil. This is his quest. This week, Adam has reviewed the Netflix show Clickbait, starring Adrian Grenier. Now, when you heard starring Adrian Grenier from Entourage, you should have stopped right there, but you didn't. <laughs> you didn't. Yeah. A, I live in Austin, and there was recently Adrian Grenier uh, was on the cover of Austin. He was on a cover on that magazine, right? Like he looked like some like cowboy or some something crazy. Cowboy. He was wearing like a, like a, some kind of tweed vest, and it's like <laughs> like he's a gentleman farmer or something. <laughs> he lives on you know some pseudo ranch out in the hill country. Um, but he's been seen around Austin, and now he has been seen on Netflix in this show Clickbait. This is this seems like a very strange program eight-part miniseries about a man, an ordinary man in Oakland, who is essentially framed for multiple murders and sexual assaults. I, I think that's how it how it goes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean that's kind of, kind of the gist. He's just like this family dude, and all of a sudden we get this kind of stage video, kind of like one of those, like, you know, terrorist videos where they're forced at gunpoint to say something. And this, he's, he's got these cue cards which have him admitting to, uh, assaulting women, and then one, he says, you know, I killed a woman. And that kind of kicks off the uh, program and the kind of plot around that. It kind of kind of goes off into two areas. One, you know, who this guy was and uh, takes up a lot of the part of the uh, program. Uh, and then it kind of slowly shifts into perhaps maybe he was set up uh, for this. So that kind of kind of bifurcates, and they kind of weave in and out of each other um, throughout the program. It's sort of a social media, YouTube, catfishing, melodrama. It sounds like it almost sounds like a, like a Lifetime a network. I guess Lifetime isn't the right right place for it. It's like a it's like this fake true crime. Yeah, yeah, and it's weird. And I found so many you know, TV shows who try to take on the internet, you know, make it this, you know, godforsaken evil thing, you know, kind of picking up on the headlines and misinformation, all that kind of stuff. And it's so over the top and so crazy, like, you know, social media and mob scenes. 
And, you know, as I had mentioned, I, I think, you know, TV is still trying to wrestle with the Internet and how to portray. And it comes off as this, you know, like incredibly evil thing, um, though I guess, you know, I guess maybe there's a couple positive uh, instances of the use of the Internet. But it's like this weird monster like thing that, uh, you know, takes over our world, which I guess in many ways it has. But it's it, it's just kind of strange. I don't think people know how to you know, use it in shows. And, and this thing is like obviously meant to, you know, shine a light on, you know, the evils of social media and how, you know, you know, catfishing and using your image, you know, images. It was almost like a, a like 1990s or 2000 version of the internet. You know, things have gotten a little more sophisticated, but uh, uh, the directors have missed kind of like the last 10, 15 years, it seemed. Yeah, it's, um, you compared it to an after-school special. Yeah. Never a good thing. Yeah, it really felt like that. It was just like hitting you over the head. Drugs are bad. Making fun of kids bad. You know, be nice to the you know kids who are handicapped or something. It was like this after-school you know kind of moralistic tone to how evil technology is. You know, and it was very amusing to have it set in theory in Oakland. Although you know, it's amusing that it was actually Melbourne. Uh, not Oakland itself, because it was probably too expensive even in Oakland to film it. But, uh, you know, the fact that uh, Internet's evil and all this kind of stuff filmed in Oakland when, you know, probably now about you know, 30, 40 percent of the city works in tech industry now. Right. The Internet built contemporary <laughs> Oakland. <laughs> exactly. The entire Bay, you know, the entire Bay Area. So yeah, that 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 <laughs> that narrative wasn't uh, uh, touched upon. And yet the show is extremely popular. <laughs> yeah. Extremely popular. I'd expect. I, I literally would expect nothing less. The worse it is, the better it is. You know, you got Adrian Grenier. You got, you know, yeah, no. And these these eight part series, you get really enveloped in them. You consume them in a couple days, and uh, you know, you get really sucked in. It's a incredible formula. I mean, it was terrible, and I, you know, I couldn't get enough of it. Well, you know, it's essentially like a dumb beach novel, it, right? Yes. And, and I think you're you not know, looking great art here, right? And, you know, Netflix, you know, you see about how it tries to be like this serious art, you know, house or art, you know, artistry and all this kind of stuff. Come on. It's just about, you know, these kind of like junky, you know, fast food kind of eight part series nonsense. <laughs> right. I saw some I saw a, uh, a thread on, on social media saying, you know, there was a Netflix movie, a super popular movie called Love in the Villa. <laughs> and sure enough, it's about two people who accidentally find themselves renting a villa together. <laughs> And you know what? They they fall in love. But this is this is what I love about uh, this is what I love in the villa about about TV in general. You know, people try to like you know put all this artistic meaning onto it. At the end of the day, it uh, the stuff that's popular is you know are shows about Christmas romance, you know lurid murder shows. <laughs> Without question, yes, exactly, and I think uh, you know, and, and streamings has only intensified it. Um, you know, we've got a few good programs out there, but streaming's just going to intensify these kind of, you know, sweet as candy kind of ridiculous things. But you know, like clickbait. But there's this, you know, in really the technology message. I mean, I think we're going to see that over the next few years, especially you know after what we've all lived through over the last couple of years, presidency, COVID, all this kind of stuff, and this use of technology and what people believe and don't believe. Um, but then you mix that with this kind of uh, approach to these eight part series, which need to be like kind of over the top. And you get these kind of weird sense of like, you know, technology's coming to kill you and everything is evil. And just like this weird over the topness. Um, I hope that settles down over time, but I doubt it. I'm pitching an eight part Netflix series, <laughs> uh, 
based around a, a violent incident that comes out of me arguing with someone who lived in my dorm sophomore year about whether or not we should mask toddlers. <laughs> wait, was that? Was, wait, did I live in your dorm as a sophomore? Yeah, it, it's not you. <laughs> Although that would be an irony if if I if I sold the show to Netflix um, and then had you write a re- about you. But I would <laughs> want yes, but I want I would want Adrian Grenier to uh, play me, just so you know. At least there was a time I looked like him. Well, well, you are a gentleman farmer uh, in in Marin County, after all. All right, yes, exactly. Adam, I don't know if we have much more to say about clickbait, so I'm gonna I'm gonna click you on out of here. Unlike and, most clickbait, avoid this if you can, but if you watch it, take it all with a grain of salt. All right, Adam Hirschfelder reviewing clickbait on this week's Book and Film Globe. We'll talk at you soon. I'll be back. All right, thanks to Adam Hirschfelder for talking to us about the terrible new Netflix show, Clickbait. Adam watches bad TV, so you don't have to. Also, thanks to Rachel Llewellyn, Samuel Porteous, and Sharon Vane. And thanks so much to you for listening to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I'm Neil Pollock. You can find the website at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. I hope you read the site. I hope you stay tuned to the show. I hope you have a wonderful week. Talk to you soon. Oh my god, this is a fucking curse. Alright. <laughs> Alright. That's I, I I guess that's it.